Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What does St. Paul mean when he explains that no one, not even an angel from heaven, can contradict the gospel that was preached in Galatia? To what does Paul appeal in making the claim that his authority comes directly from God and not from men? How do the norms of civil law shed light on Paul's opening argument in Galatians chapter 1? Why do fascists and dictators who control every aspect of civil society still seek legitimacy from their respective constitutions? What does all of this have to do with a dead guy named Hammurabi? Join us as Richard and I discuss St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 94 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we're going to talk about my favorite book, Galatians Will Always Be the Place that I heard the gospel for the first time. Galatians really does overarch all of the New Testament and is an interpretation of even what's going on in the Old Testament. And with a parishioner this week getting admitted to the bar in the state of Minnesota, I think Galatians, because of the terminology Paul uses and the argument that he lays out about how the text functions within the community. This framework gives us an opportunity to contextualize the importance of the legal profession, which derives its principles really from scripture, this idea that the will of man is replaced by a text, by a law. Now, obviously in Galatians, the law to which Paul is referring is the Torah, So it is something that is above the code of Hammurabi or any of these other ancient codes that kings would develop. Because, of course, the argument in Scripture from the prophets is that the laws that men write ultimately serve human justice, which, because human justice is inherently self-serving, You might say that it protects civil liberties, but then I could ask you, whose civil liberties? And there are plenty of people who would stand up and say the Constitution protects Americans, but it doesn't protect people in Guantanamo Bay. This, I think, illustrates clearly the limits of civil law and human law because it's integrated with our biology and our desire to survive. Whereas scripture presents us a law that works against our biology and that ultimately in the narrative of the New Testament, crucifies us in order to impose God's justice, as it were, in the place of human will, human ego. It's a battle between the human will, manifest either by the individual or by civil society, and the will of God. And this is a really important point because the Romans had a very elaborate system of law. So this would have been appealing in a Roman context. Roman society fell into a showdown with the Bible vis-a-vis the Pauline school. And this had huge impact sociologically on a global level. 
So Paul is coming into the setting. I mean, his argument is, look, I brought to you this teaching. You accepted it. And now, as in the case of the prophets and Israel, now you are playing the harlot. He's telling the Gentile church, you're doing the same thing Israel did. You're playing the harlot and going to listen to what other apostles are saying. So there's this problem right away. And the way that Paul tackles it is not dissimilar to the way any judge or lawyer would talk. Say, look, it's not about my opinion. It's not about the opinion of the other apostles. It's about what the text says. You either accept that this text has authority or you don't. And if you do, then not only can I, Paul, not disagree with it, but God himself can't disagree with it. It's a very interesting argument. I think it's typical for human beings to look to a higher authority to make their point. It's one thing for me to say, you need to do this because I said so. Whoever you are, whether you're dad or whether you're Paul, it always functions for human beings to look at a higher authority. If you're in the Middle Ages, if you're the king, you say, well, I was placed here by God and Jesus, and you know, you can say it like that. You can go all the way back to Hammurabi, like you were saying. The Code of Hammurabi is giving a list of all the adjudications that Hammurabi gave. You know, he judged this to be true in this case and this to be true in this case, you know, as the judge. But on the actual stele, you see at the very top, there's a scroll being handed to Hammurabi by the god. What is implicit there is that Hammurabi, yes, he's very wise, but it's not just about Hammurabi. It's about something higher than him. And so I think that Paul in this letter is really trying to make the case that it's not just me saying this is a good idea. There is something that has authority over all of us, like you said, Father, which is Torah. So he's going to appeal to Torah to make his case about who is in and who is out and what this whole understanding of identity is, which is a problem, as you mentioned in your book. So I think that there is this typical reaction of human beings to say, this isn't about me, this is something bigger than me. You talk about this function of this ultimate power, this immutable power that psychologically has always been put in place in order to maintain order in the function of the court, even in the United States. When the Supreme Court justices walk in, everyone stands up. In a culture where there is no more ceremony, the one place where there has to be ceremony is around the Constitution. And even law students today will tell you, well, the Constitution could be mistaken, the Constitution can be interpreted. I mean, people talk this way now in American society, but it's talk because at the end of the day, they all still have to deal with the text of the Constitution. You are stuck with it. Now, you can amend it, but it's a big flipping deal to amend the Constitution. It can be done. But then once it's amended, you are stuck with what it says. There was a discussion at the beginning of the writing of the Constitution that every generation should write its new Constitution. Originally in the United States, that was one way of thinking. But instead, what human beings do is they take the text because they need that concrete thing they can go back to that goes beyond the human being, that goes beyond the generations. And then soon enough, not in the United States, but soon enough, it gets ascribed to a deity as coming way before human beings were around. Looking at Galatians in particular, it's significant because whereas the Romans are looking back at Greek texts, they're looking at Homer's texts about the fighting among the gods, the territorialism among the gods, the territorialism among the human beings, the identity around the virtues and all this kind of thing. We have the text of the Torah at the basis of Paul, which is negating the value of the human being over and against God, showing the rebellion, the natural rebellion 
of human beings against God and that there's always going to be a problem that God has to confront. The irony is that in the narrative of the New Testament, Peter and James really believe, despite their hypocrisy, that they are defending the Torah. And Paul is showing them by applying the Torah that they're betraying God's law. Now, it's no coincidence, of course, that James is connected to the name Jacob, Israel, which is the harlot in the Old Testament. And Peter, in the gospel narratives, denied Jesus. So this showdown with Paul over the authority of Scripture plays out in the narrative, both ways, backwards and forwards. So anyways, let's begin. Let's talk about it with this context in mind and see where it leads us. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. So we begin right off with Paul's authority. Paul is not speaking on his own behalf. It's not Paul an apostle with a great idea. It's Paul an apostle not sent from men, but through Jesus Christ. So he's already claiming this authority is coming directly from Jesus Christ. This is something that he is claiming that his readers and his listeners have to wrestle with right off the bat. And then you see in verse 3, there's this classic framework that Father Paul Tarazi discovered and talks about a lot that I referred to in my own book, the grace and the peace represent the opposite ends of the way, the odos in daily life. You walk, the day of grace is the day you receive the teaching. The day of peace is the day that you face your end, you face the judgment. And he's setting you up. Paul is setting you up in this framework. It's the halakha. You have to walk according to God's commandments. And we'll note later on how he ends the letter with a word of hope by not using the word peace because he's giving them more time. It's very important that Paul is judging you But what it really is, is Paul giving you a taste of the coming judgment in the hopes that you'll get back on the path. He mentions here the present evil age. I alluded to earlier the showdown with Roman society. At the time of this letter, Rome was in a rapid and steady decline into Hellenistic egoism and Hellenistic religion, and it was undermining Roman civil society, undermining the dignity of a society governed by constitution, governed by text, and supplanting that with a society that would be governed by the ego of Caesar. It's very important that in the New Testament, Paul always goes after the paterfamilias. He keeps the paterfamilias in place as a father, but supplants his ego with the Torah. And this is what Paul ultimately wants to do to Caesar. And so when he talks about the present evil age, it's the age of human kingdoms, which here is the age of Caesar. Paul has to make sure that the people understand that the text is central, the text is the highest, and that Paul is a servant of that text. And Paul is for them an authority because he brings them this text, because he brings them the interpretation of this text. But he has to show that he is subservient to the text itself also. And that's what he's doing here, is he's showing us that Jesus Christ is the one who's rescuing us. It's not Paul who's claiming to rescue you. But he's also saying that he doesn't just have some passing thoughts. He's saying that he has authoritative interpretation. Now, people could say, Paul, I don't think you really know what you're talking about. Paul, I know you say all this stuff, but why should we believe you? And he said, well, 
I have scripture on my side, and here's how. Now, if you want to disagree with him, you can say, I don't think the Bible is saying that. Paul, he can't do anything if you say that. I don't think that's what scripture is saying. But if you say, Paul, I don't like what you're saying, you don't have any right it's to say anything. It's not functional. On what basis do you not like what he's saying? It's like I tell my parishioners, if you can come to me and make a case to me on the basis of scripture and prove me wrong, then I will tell you I'm wrong. Because the authority always, always, always has to be the law. And for those of us who claim to be citizens of the coming kingdom, ultimately, our law is the Bible. Very straightforward, very simple, but not easy, as my dad used to say. Now, it's also the God and Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And this is, for me, an important concept in Genesis, that God is the one who creates life at the setting for life to flourish. And he's the only one who can give you advice that will facilitate life, that will produce life, that will allow life to continue. Because I mentioned earlier that civil law ultimately is selfish. It tries to be blind. It tries to be just. But at the end of the day, even the way it's written reflects the ego of its author. Scripture is the only law in which the authors condemn themselves, in which the authors forfeit their security. So that's what's unique here. That's the unique principle at work, which is expressed in the metaphor of the cross, which is obviously a very important part of the argument in Galatians. Yes, that God would give life to the one who has lost his life to human justice that is the one particularly who receives God's life. Because in John, Jesus was tried in a Roman court and he was accused. And the Jews egged it on. The people who, who were supposed to be under God's law and protect the downtrodden were cheering on civil law because civil law afforded them certain benefits in the Roman Empire. So you have already in the first five verses of Galatians an explanation as to why Jesus was accused of treason. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So this is the harlotry. He laid the gospel down. Now others are coming in. And of course, we'll discover later they're coming in and saying you should grow longer beards. You should wear your cassock when you go to the grocery store. You should be circumcised. You should fast on these days. You should sing these hymns. In other words, they're coming in and they're using religious stuff as a way to fool the people into forfeiting what Paul offered them, which was access to God's wisdom. Right. They want to follow a different law. I think it's interesting how he plays on gospel. They're for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. There's and, one constitution. What other constitution is there? Right. Or the law that I think should be in the constitution. That's <laughs> not a constitution. It's not referring to anything true. And in my work on Hosea, that's one of the things that the people don't understand, that when they go after another source of life other than God, they're not going with God. They're going with a different God who is really no God at all. This is what the people are doing. They're saying, we are going to follow the gospel. But then, in fact, he's saying, this contradicts what I was saying before. So it can't be the gospel. It can't even be a gospel. It's contradicting what I'm saying is the gospel. So therefore, it cannot hold any weight. So again, he's trying to lay out the principles, but they're not principles as in abstract ideas. It's simply 
scripture that he's referring back to. And he's setting out his presuppositions now, and he'll be getting to the arguments themselves as he starts exegeting. And here comes this beautiful verse, and it's funny, I've heard lawyers and judges talk this way over and over again because it's really ingrained into them in their profession, which they take very seriously. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Anathema means, and this is ironic again because one potential usage of anathema, and I talk about this in the book, is that you are like the offering hung from the wall of the temple spent. So Jesus will be that spent offering, even though he's not the one who's transgressing his father's instruction. You can see already the foreshadowing of how Jesus is going to take the sentence on his own head in order to purchase the freedom of his brothers, the children of his father, who are now slaves either to the Roman Empire or to the Jewish religious infrastructure or tribe, whatever you want to call it. Paul is claiming that, again, it's not about him. Even if I contradict scripture, scripture holds. And the quote that I use, of course, is the Stephen Breyer quote where he says, once an opinion is written, that's it. And even if I disagree with my own opinion, I have no right to disagree with it because once it's committed to writing, it's authoritative. Once it's committed and accepted and Paul is coming saying, look, the Old Testament is committed and accepted. It's a canon. We're done. It's a closed book. In the age of the internet, this caused a problem with even the Supreme Court, where they would write opinions and then they would edit them afterwards. And legal scholars and lawyers were saying, we can't have that because we need an authoritative text we can go back to. So they actually had to put a mechanism on the website of the Supreme Court so that if there was any edit that was made, it would track them so people could see what was happening because no edits could happen unless people can see. Now, in those opinions, it has to be the latest one. So I don't know how Supreme Court opinions work. Somehow, you know, you can edit them for grammar and that sort of thing. But even that, if you're going to edit them for grammar, even that is a big deal. Of course it's a big deal because otherwise Caesar can declare himself a god. Hosni Mubarak can declare himself the eternal ruler of Egypt. Vladimir Putin can suddenly say, I was elected democratically for the next 50 years. I mean, can you imagine if the Supreme Court is allowed to have opinions and to contradict what is committed to writing? If they could do that without following the correct process and their framework, then Obama could declare himself the emperor by just making a few changes to the text online. You see, it's a big risk. It always puzzled me that you would have a dictator of a country who is always monkeying around with the Constitution. He's a dictator. Why does he just say, hey, I'm your dictator. Forget about the Constitution. For some reason, even a dictator could be Gaddafi in power for 40 years, still has to go back and change the Constitution to say, look, it is okay for me to be in power. He's got the army. The army says it's okay for him to be in power. Why does he have to go back to the text? Even the scoundrels and the dictators know you need to go back to this text. You can't contradict the text. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant, a slave of Christ. The slavery terminology has to do with the Roman household. Christ is the head of the household, ultimately. And the father of Christ is God. So he's letting you know what the pecking order is on the one hand. But on the other hand, he's saying, since that's the pecking order, my interest is what God the Father wants, which comes to me through his son, Jesus Christ, who brings the message. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what God has to say. God is my judge. 
I'm not interested in being applauded by human beings. I don't need my colleagues or the people in Galatia or anyone to say, well done, good and faithful servant to me. Paul is saying, I want to hear that from the lips of Christ and everyone else is irrelevant, which means I don't care what your vote is. I don't care what your opinion is. I don't care if you hate me. I have an assignment and this is it. It's to say this, which doesn't belong to me. And if you hate me because of it, fine. I'm the slave of the one who is humiliated and rejected by everybody. He's my boss, not you. There's a subtext here because he's accusing, ultimately, the other apostles of flirting with the church in Galatia and manipulating them and playing on their ego the way an abusive company does to young employees, tells them how great they are, how smart they are, how bright they are, how special they are, and then they make them work 80-hour weeks until you have kids working on Wall Street committing suicide from the stress. So Paul is very clever here because he sees how the other apostles are abusing the church in Galatia or setting them up for abuse to glory in their flesh. And he'll use this terminology later in the epistle. He's saying, I'm not here to take advantage of you. I'm here to do you a favor by sharing this with you. You're lucky to have this opportunity. So why are you turning your back on it? For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, which is what I was saying earlier, that God sent Jesus Christ to Paul carrying the scroll. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. He could not have written this on his own. That's what he's saying. It had to come from outside of him. But he's already laying down proof that he is coming with the scroll of the Torah, because in the scroll of the Torah and the Nevi'im, the Old Testament, God always comes to you through your enemies. So now Paul is being raised up as an enemy of the church, and it is that enemy that once persecuted the church that is now coming with God's instruction. It's classic prophetic symbolism and metaphor here. He continues, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And this sets up the foundation for an argument that Paul makes repeatedly. You're trying to impress me with your worldly achievements. But in worldly terms, I'm the President of the United Nations and the President of the United States and the Pope of Rome. I did all that. And you come to me, you're a restaurant owner, whatever it is you think you're so impressed with that you bring so much worldly wisdom, or you went to a Jewish ceremony and got excited about their ceremony, now you're going to lecture me on Judaism? Are you kidding me? This is Paul laying the foundation to say, you converts don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm the one who offered you the teaching, and now you're coming and you're telling me what it means to be a Jew? Are you kidding me? Again, this establishes his authority of understanding the text, and that's what's central here, is he's showing that he understands the text. If you want to argue with him, you have to argue on basis of the text. But he's, yes, but he's playing a game. He's saying, if you want to shift off the text, I can crush you there, too. It's both and, but the shifting off of the text is not because he values the things that are worldly. It's because he's using the things that are worldly in order to serve what really counts, which is the text. It's a game. That's why people think Paul is boasting. And he has to say, I'm not boasting. At the end of the day, I'm not boasting about how great I am in worldly terms. That's just my way of trying to help you understand that I'm not as stupid as the teaching makes me look. I'm boasting about the cross. 
this is a big thing in Paul's letters, and it's not just Galatians, and it bears mentioning. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Again, my authority isn't coming from the other apostles. My authority is not coming from the church. It's coming from above the church. God sent Jesus to me, and Jesus sent me to the very church that I persecuted. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Meaning, again, I don't need to go talk to the guys who hung out with Jesus while he was alive. This isn't about my personal relationship with Jesus, so to speak. There's no nepotism here. There's no authority by association. There is authority on the basis of mission. Apostelmenos, you know. He was sent with the message. He is the angelos in this sense. Where did he go? He went up to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus, which is, again, in the Old Testament, that classic region, the north, from which the invaders always come against Judah. So Paul is invading Judah right now. Ironically, he's invading Judah to rescue the Romans. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. After the fact, I went to talk to Peter and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he's saying these are his opponents. He's removing any kind of space between him and scripture itself. This isn't a a teaching I received from the other apostles. My authority doesn't come from their stamp of approval. I am able to understand the text. I'm able to interpret the text through this interpretation that was given to me by Jesus Christ. Correct. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Meaning, I kid you not, I really did go up to talk to these guys. And I didn't receive it from them. I brought it to them. Do you see the point that he's making? He brought it to them. And the fact that he came to Peter first, after his withdrawal, is metaphoric because Christ appeared first to Peter in 1 Corinthians as a sign of judgment against Peter. In our worldly way of thinking, Peter has the position of privilege, but in the scriptural way of thinking, Peter is judged because Paul is the least and Peter is the greatest. And we know from the Beatitudes in Luke that if you are the greatest, you'll be the least. If you're happy, you'll be sad. If you're comfortable, you'll be in discomfort. Everything's turned on its head in Scripture. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this. We won't go into it today. But it's important that there's so much mechanical structural symbolism in the letter. It's quite beautiful when you spend time with it and work on it. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, meaning there was no statue of Paul in Jerusalem. Because Paul doesn't bring a statue, just like Christ doesn't bring a statue in the resurrection. The tomb is empty. Paul brings the word, which the angel announces at the tomb. It's not about the effigy, it's about the law. The instruction, which Paul explains, is about the care for others. That's what we're driving at in this letter. But only they, meaning the people in Judea, kept hearing they kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they were glorifying not paul they were glorifying god because of paul because of me he says but it's not that they're glorifying god because of paul's ego it's glorifying god in the same way hearkening back to our reading of ruth in the way that God was glorified in the rescuing of the line of 
Elimelech. There's no way you can walk away from Ruth saying that Elimelech was glorified, even though the rescuing of his line was central to God's plan. It's not about the glorification of these patriarchs. It's about the glorification of God's line, which Paul will talk about extensively in this letter. This is how it should be done. But, you know, it's so easy for religious people. If you want to look at stories that people get really teary-eyed about, you look at the video put out by Christians about the former Hindu or the former Muslim who became Christian. Or you find the story of the Jew or the Christian who became Muslim, and the Muslims like to make videos about them and that sort of thing. They say, oh, isn't it so wonderful that this person now became one of us? The question is, do they want to then own you? And do they want to own your message in order to build up their own identity? This is the question. And Paul is upset because the people are not listening to him. That's why he had to write this letter. Are they actually glorifying God because of him? Or are they glorifying themselves because they managed to have such a convincing message that this former enemy now became one of them? And Paul says, by the way, you are not the ones who convinced me to come over to your side. You make an important point also that he said they were glorifying God because of me, which is part of his argument that in the beginning they accepted it. And he'll talk about that in subsequent chapters about the other apostles, about the people in Galatia, which is a kind of way of holding them accountable in court. Did you or did you not say that you agreed to this? Yes or no? And you can't object to the question in the court of God the Father. And if they answer, yes, Paul, we agreed to this, now he's got them. Then why did you suddenly change what you agreed to and you consented to and you promised in the court of God? Why? And this is how he'll deal later on with the law of Moses, you know, the concept of the legal precedent in Latin, which comes from Roman law. Once it's established, you can't contradict what was already established. Beautiful opening to the letter. Look forward to future discussions. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you, Father. the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network